Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. My name's Joe, and I'm one of the leaders here, and um, it's a privilege for me to do this, and I enjoy it, so maybe it's you who've drawn the short straw today. (laughs) And, and not myself. It really is a privilege to be able to serve here as a pastor, so thank you for the honor of doing that. Um, I really love this church. Even if I didn't work here, I would come here, and I did that. And it's a wonderful church, and you are all are wonderful people, so love you very much. I'll just stop doing that. For some reason, that makes me want to cry. I don't know why, and I'm not a crier. That's weird. So anyway, well, we're going to continue our study in the book of 1 John today. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 5. We're just going to jump right in and, and read 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. We'll put the words on the screen. You can look it up on your smartphone as well. But if you don't have a Bible with you because you don't own a Bible, I'd love to fix that. I'd love to give you one. So come see me before you leave today out at the welcome station. We'll put a Bible into your hands. We believe everybody should have their own copy of the Bible. So come get one if you don't got one. But otherwise, if you do have one already, don't get an extra one. Okay, we've all got the ones that are like on the shelf that we never read. That's not what this one is for. <laughs> so 1 John chapter 5, 13 through 21 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we're in him who is true, and his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then the Apostle John finishes this letter that he's written to a church with these words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I want to pray for us before we go on. And I'll say this, I was praying this morning in my office and I I began to pray, Lord, will you give me clarity in the things that I say today? And then I took my prayer back right away (laughs) because I don't I, I want to be clear. Don't hear, don't hear me wrong. I want to be clear in what I say. I, want, I don't want to lose you as I'm talking. I, I want you to be able to engage and understand the words that I'm saying. But, but that's not the most important thing is that I would be clear in what I'm saying. So I took that prayer back and I prayed, Lord, no, don't let me be clear, but let the Holy Spirit be clear in what he's saying to the people in the room and who are watching online. One of my favorite things after I've preached is when people come up to me and say, man, that thing you said, it was just great and this and that and whatever, and it has nothing to do with my message. (laughs) And what that says to me is that God was talking to you. That's what I really want. That's what we really want here is that God will somehow use 
our words, because what I've got is simply my interpretation of the Bible. So you can take that or leave, take that for what you will. But my prayer is that God will use my limited interpretation of the Bible to actually speak to us through his Holy Spirit today. So would you pray with me for that thing? Lord, we don't need my words. We don't need the words of any man or woman. We need your words. And so I pray that you will speak to us today, that you will send your Holy Spirit to our thoughts to speak words of truth about who Jesus is. Help us to leave here knowing more about Jesus than we did when we came in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is actually our final week of this book, 1 John, and we'll be studying the closing passage of this letter. And that's what the book of 1 John is. It's a letter. It's a letter written by a pastor, John, to his church in the twilight years of his life. So imagine with me, if you will, an old man who spent years lovingly leading, teaching, and caring for his little flock. He's been with them through good times. He's been with them through bad times. He celebrated weddings and new babies with them. He baptized new members into his church. He welcomed new visitors into his church who over time became lifelong friends of his. He trained younger leaders to help him lead and who eventually took over the church after he passed away. He presided over the funerals of those who were dear friends of his and over the loved ones of dear friends of his. He prayed for them while they were sick and he sat at the bedside of many of them while they were breathing their last. He taught them the word of God all while he was there and he exemplified for them a godly life and he even called them little children because to him they were his own little children. Now, imagine with me, if you will, that over time in the declining strength and and waning energies of his life that other shepherds have snuck in to this little flock and they began to introduce new teachings that were different from what John had taught. And they're not just introducing themselves as new shepherds, but they're introducing teachings that are not the truth. And you can imagine the heartache this would bring to John in these moments. You can imagine the righteous anger that would begin to boil up within him, the holy passion that God would stir within John to try to right this ship lest it veer too far off course and actually shipwreck. He has to write this letter. He has to say these things lest all the work he'd done over the years, all the tears he'd shed, all the sermons he'd preached, all the love he'd given, be in vain. And so this righteous anger was the impetus for him writing this letter because these false teachers, these false shepherds having snuck in were attempting to lead John's little flock astray. Now these false teachings, we have covered them in some detail over the past weeks of this series and time won't allow me to really dive in to what some of them were. So I encourage you to return to some of those messages if you want to learn what those false teachings were. But just know this, that they brought an unsettled feeling to the Christians in the church that John pastored. And as you might imagine, receiving new information about your faith that contradicts what you already know brings an unsettling feeling. Questions regarding the truthfulness of what you've always been taught can really shake the foundations of your faith. And this was the real danger in the church, not just that what they were learning was different, but that in learning something new and different, they might actually be tempted to question everything about who Jesus is, having previously been so in love with him. 
Now, this was the task that lay before John in writing this letter was he, he wanted to share with his church good theology so that they might be saved from bad theology. And theology is an interesting thing because our understanding of it, I think, is a little limited. Webster defines theology as this, the study of religious faith, practice, and experience, especially the study of God and God's relation to the world. And that sums it up very well. In fact, the word theology is comprised of, or comes from two different Greek words, which literally means knowledge of God. Theology is the knowledge of God. And when I said that some of us may have a misunderstanding of theology, I want to tell you what I mean by that, because very often our understanding of theology is that it is something which only belongs in universities and libraries or in the pastor's study or on the platform at church on Sunday. And the problem with that is that if we use the very simplest definition of the term theology is that it is something that is practiced by anyone who wishes to know God, the truth of the word tells us that we're all theologians, all of us, whether we believe in him or not, because even disbelief in God is a claimed knowledge about who he is. And I would argue that theology has shaped world history more than any other field of study, since if we continue with that simple understanding of the word, we are all theologians. Now, it's important for us to keep in mind that while we are all theologians and we all have a capacity to know God, and we even have an intuition within us that drives us to want to know him, we have to be really careful because the things that we know about him may actually be misinformation about him. What I'm saying is this, that our theology, even if it is very sincere, may in fact be wrong. This was the thing that was troubling John so deeply was the misinformation being presented about God's nature, God's character, the way that he loves humanity was wrong. And, and this should challenge each of us and cause us to ask the question, my theology, though sincere, what I know about God, though sincere, though learned from sincere people, is it actually good? And can I be certain that my theology is good? Now, John wanted to correct these errors being taught, and so he reminds them of certain tests where they could determine whether or not their theology was good. And again, all of these tests are brought up in the previous messages from this series, but I'll just cover them real quickly. They had to do with their doctrine, they had to do with their morals, and with their social interactions. So in other words, do you believe the truth about who Jesus is? Secondarily, do you live like a person who believes the truth about who Jesus is? And thirdly, do you love others like somebody who believes the truth about who Jesus is? See, his goal is to point to the reality that good theology is not just an intellectual thing, not just that we know about God, but that we know about him in such a way that we experience him and he changes our life in that way. It's my belief that the church in this age has become unsettled by various teachings and opinions that are just out there and everywhere. Maybe you've read them on social media, which I told my wife yesterday, you really need to stay off of Facebook. <laughs> Not because she goes on there and shares her opinion, but because the opinions of other people hurt her sometimes. You know how mad, that, oh, you know how mad that makes me? <laughs> Do you know how mad it makes God when false opinions abuse and mistreat the knowledge of him that his 
beloved people have for him. He hates it. He hates it. That's why it's important for us to be careful where we get our information from. Maybe your favorite news anchor has even said something like this. Well, true Christianity looks like, have you heard that sort of thing lately? Or Jesus would certainly do this in that situation. Or, or Jesus would never do that. Or one of my favorites, Jesus would never spend money on that. We've all heard those things. And, and these statements are unsettling and they can bring uncertainty and doubt to our faith. And even if they were true, we have to be careful because we could be in danger of losing the foundations or doubting the foundations of our faith if the foundations of our faith are built on unstable grounds. So my goal isn't to say that those statements are not true or that they are true, but I want us all to stop and reorient ourselves around the things that we know are true about who Jesus is. And in the midst of this unsettling and uncertainty, find assurance that God does want us to know some certain things. And so there are many things to question and wonder about in this day and age. And, and some of these challenges may actually be good for the church if they're given in the spirit of charity, but we have to be really careful that in all of it, we keep our eyes on the certain truth about who Jesus is as revealed in the Bible. That is the most important thing for us. And so it's with this in mind that I want to approach what John has said in this closing portion of his letter and ask this question, what does God want me to be certain of so that I might have good theology? And he gives us a few different things. In verse 13, it says that he wants me to have and he wants you to have assurance of eternal life. I write these things to you, verse 13 says, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the unfortunate thing about bad theology is that it introduces doubt into our faith. And it causes us to wonder, does God really love me? It causes us to wonder, does God really want me to live forever with him? Now, eternal life is kind of this strange thing. And Pastor Jeff talked about it last week a little bit. So if you want a fuller explanation of what I'm about to describe, go back and listen to that message. But he, he did say this, that eternal life is not just something that we're, we're given one day and then it is one day that is added on to the next and that it just is one day that keeps going and going and going. But eternal life, the, the word itself implies that it has existed forever. Eternity literally means that it has no beginning and no end. And so it isn't just something that we're given, but it's in fact something that Jesus invites us to step into with him, eternal life. And the problem about our our doubts in these false teachings is that it causes us to wonder, does God really want me with him? And so here's what happens in those moments when we doubt whether or not God has given us eternal life. It's when we screw up, which I do often, and, and maybe you do too, we begin to question, am, am I really his? Can he ever forgive me of this? Well, God would never want to hear from me in prayer because of those things that I've done. And John says here, if there's, if there's one thing that I've wanted you to get from this entire letter that I've written, it's this, I want you to be sure that God has granted to you eternal life. He has given us eternal life. He also wants us to have assurance that he'll answer our prayers. Verses 14 and 15 say this, this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests 
that we've asked of him. So he wants us to know that he's given us eternal life, but he also wants us to know that having been given eternal life through Jesus, we can go to him at all times and he will hear us when we pray. This word confidence literally carries with it the idea of being so bold and unashamed in something that you believe that you would enter into a public forum where there are people all around and just stop and, and, and shout the things that you believe with no shame whatsoever. John says this is the kind of confidence we can approach God with. The word in the original Greek literally carried with it the idea in that day and age of freedom of speech. We have freedom of speech before God's throne. We can go to him with anything that's on our heart. We can go to him with our doubts. And sometimes he'll make you mad. And it's okay to tell him that. He's very secure. <laughs> he can handle it. He wants us to approach him with such confidence that, that we can say whatever's on our mind and whatever's on our heart because he already knows. And so it's no surprise to him what is inside of us. He wants it to come out because it's in that conversation that relationship with him is built and developed. And it says we can know that he'll give us what we ask for if we ask according to his will. Now there's the caveat. And now that might cause us to want to ask the question, well, how do I know God's will? And maybe that's a question you've asked before in regards to uh, life circumstances, maybe in regards to issues with your family, maybe in regards to uh, changing job or moving to a different state. How do I know what God's will is in this? And, and unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give us those answers. It doesn't tell you where you should go to work or where you should move to. But there are some things we can know that are God's will, that we can pray according to with complete faith, he'll answer them. And I'll, I'll say this real quick. If you, if you do want to know God's will, we look to the Bible to find out what are the things he's promised. What are the things God has promised? That's his will. If he's promised it, he wants to carry it out. And if we pray according to those things, we can have complete faith that he hears me and is actually giving me those things that I've requested. And I'll just throw this in there real quick. In order to know his promises, we actually have to know what the Bible says. And in order to know what the Bible says, it has to be more than just hearing what we have to say on Sunday. It has to be an actual relationship with it in the week where where we open it on our own and, and we actually dig in and read and, and study the Bible to try to find out who God is and learn what he has said and what he has promised. Prayer is not this thing where we go to God and attempt to bend his will to conform to ours. It's according to his will that he answers our prayer. There was a theologian, John Stott, who said that every prayer that humans have is just a variation of Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. He prays to God, if there's any other way for me to rescue humanity, can we please do that instead of the cross? And he finishes with these words, but it's not my will I want, it's your will that I want to be done. Every prayer that we pray is a variation of that prayer. It's not my will, Lord. It's your will that we want to be done. You see, in prayer, it's not something where we approach God and say, will you please do the things that I want 
you to do. It's an opportunity for us to allow God to shape us so that we want the things he wants from us. Prayer is not just getting things from God. It's God getting the best out of us. That's why it's so important. He already knows what we need. We don't have to ask him for anything, really, because he knows what we need. He knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. Prayer is for us to experience and to know him better. And prayer is something that we should be doing for other people. John gives us an example of what it's like to ask God for something in verses in verse 16, and here's why. It's because if I've got an assurance of eternal life and that God's going to answer my prayers, I shall want the same things for other people. So he says this in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what this means. And there was not uh, one, I read multiple commentaries on this verse, hoping I could find uh, something profound to say to you about that, but I, I got nothing because none of the commentators agree with what this means. So for 2,000 years, smart people have been disagreeing over what this verse says. I'm not going to try to tell you <laughs> what it means. But here are two things that I know. Number one, sin leads to death. It is destructive. It ruins lives. This is why God hates it, because it ruins our lives. He hates sin so much because it destroys his people. So all this sin leading to death, you can ask God for it and he will give it or whatever. I don't know what that means, but I do know this sin leads to death and it destroys lives and God hates that. Number two, we can pray other people out of sinful situations. That's often the last thing we want to do though, isn't it? Most of the time when we see somebody engaged in a lifestyle that we think is destructive for them, what we'll do is go to that person and, and say, you know, you really might try to change this or perhaps we'll be even more aggressive and accuse them of being a sinner in danger of hell or maybe we'll just be pushy with them or maybe what's better than that, what's better than going to the person is talking to other people about it. That's a lot more fun, too, because then you don't actually have to have a confrontation. And, oh, my gosh, isn't gossip just so juicy? And it feels so good, doesn't it, to talk about other people? No, there, there's nothing in my words that can change a person's heart. There's nothing in, in your words that can change a person's heart. There's nothing in a conversation between two people who have nothing to do with another person that can change that person's heart. But do you know who can? Jesus Christ. I don't know what John is trying to say here in verse 16, but I do know that he's saying something like this. If you see somebody whose life is a mess, just pray about it. Ask God to give them life. Ask God to change them. Stop blaming them for their problem. Maybe it is their problem. Maybe it is their fault. Stop accusing them of, of being a sinner. Maybe they are just a sinner, but none of that helps. It's only going to God himself and asking, Lord, will you change this person's heart? I bet if we just stopped and did that first, we'd be amazed at all of the changes we saw in people around us. So he wants me to be sure that I have eternal life through Jesus. He wants me to be sure that he answers my prayers. And he wants me to be sure that I am protected from sin 
by Jesus. Verse 18, the only, it says this, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. This one is a little bit confusing and I do think I have some insight on what this means. So everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That everyone who has been born of God, that's those of us who believe in Jesus, who have been born again as we call it, who, who God has changed and transformed our hearts and made us new and brought us into his family. That's you and I. And then it says, but he who was born of God protects him. It almost sounds like it's talking about the same people, but this he who was born of God, I believe is Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God. The Bible refers to him. And most commentators in fact agree that this is what's saying here, that, that those of us who are born again, we shouldn't keep on sinning. And the reason why that happens is not because we're so great. It's not because we have it all together. It's not because we figured out how to live a holy life. It's because the son of God protects us from sin and the evil one does not touch us. The only reason I'm not in a mess right now is because Jesus has kept me from that. The only reason we're not in the situations that the people that we want to point our fingers at are in is because Jesus has protected us from it. He is guarding us. The word literally has the idea of, of almost a, a guard at a, at a prison watching over a prisoner. Guys, it's like when you're watching your wife's purse while she's changing clothes at Old Navy. Okay. Okay. The way you guard that purse, cause you don't want to tell her you lost it. That's the way he's guarding us. The way I guard my plate of biscuits at Cracker Barrel when they come to my table. So my wife doesn't eat them. That's the way he's guarding us with tender care and watchful eyes looking over us, protecting us from sin. I wish I could tell you I'm standing here right now because I've done such a great job of following Jesus. I wish I could tell you that I've held on to him with all that I had and that a long time ago I decided no matter what, I will never turn my back on Jesus. I wish I could tell you that, but I can't. I can't tell you that. I've tried to run away from him. Here's what I can tell you is that before the world was even formed, he had decided he's going to hang on to me. He's going to protect me. He's keeping me from sin. He's protected me from that. It has nothing to do with anything I've done or anything I've decided. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done and what Jesus has decided. And this doesn't give us the opportunity to blame him when we do fall into sin. <laughs> What well, blew it big time this week. I guess Jesus wasn't protecting me. Wouldn't that be awesome to just blame God? It's, it doesn't work that way. The, the way that he protects us, the Bible says that, that in every temptation we face, we're given an opportunity to escape. We know that, don't we? We always can see that open door that he's open for us to get out of the situation that we're in. I can tell you... I, I can't tell you how many times I've walked through the wrong door. <laughs> but every time I look back and I say, I see where he had a, a way for me to get out of it. I just didn't choose that in the moment. That's the way he protects us. He gives us, well, he doesn't eliminate our will. He gives us the opportunity for our will to be conformed to his through the choices that we make. Finally, he wants me to be sure that I can, that he wants me to know him. He just wants me to know him. Verse 20 says this, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true 
And we're in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He wants our theology, our knowledge of God to be true, based around the son of God, Jesus Christ. He wants us, this is, this is what he wants us to be sure of. He wants us to know that we can know him. Now, I know Joe Biden. You didn't know that, did you? I know Joe Biden. I know what he did before he was president. I know that he was one of the youngest people ever elected to Senate. I know he was the oldest person ever elected to the presidency. I know his wife's name. I know what he did before he was elected to the Senate. I know some things uh, about him. I also know my wife. And I know some things about her. But I don't just know things about her. I'm really learning how to actually know her. Like I know when she says, I'm fine. And she's really not. <laughs> I know the things that she likes without her having to tell me. I know the things, well, I'm learning the things that she hates without her having to tell me what those are. Like, I know who Joe Biden is, and I could tell you things about him. I know my wife because I live with her, and I'm in relationship with her. So often, when, when we hear the phrase, know God, we think what it means is know things about God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to church and I'm going to hear things about God. I'm going to pick up the Bible and learn things about God. I might even try a study Bible to learn a little bit more about God. And all those things are wonderful and they're important for building relationship and actually knowing someone. But the difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing someone is night and day. They do not equal the same thing. God's desire is not just that we know about him, which is what... Many of us, I believe, have based our theology on knowing about him. I have experienced this anyway. God actually wants us to know him in such a way that it changes us. And it influences the way that we view who Jesus is. It influences the way we view the world around us. It influences the way we interact with others. He wants us to know him in a way that actually changes our lives. And it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge whereby we actually have a relationship with him. This is what he wants for us. He finishes with this verse, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And now that I'm done with my introduction, I'll go in. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, a real quick note about this uh, verse, guard yourselves from idols, because next week we're actually starting a new series based on that verse, <laughs> guarding ourselves from, from idols. But he, he makes a point to show us a difference between the true God, knowing the true God, Jesus Christ, and knowing him in a way that it affects our lives, knowing him in a way that is actually experiential and not just intellectual, actually knowing him, not just knowing about him, the true God, and idols, which are false gods. It was literally the word that referred to statues that people would worship in that day and age and call them 
a God. And the difference between the, true, the two is this, is that the one true God actually created all things. And that idol is something that a man created. Can you imagine looking to something you made yourself as the source of your own life? And I say it's hard for us to imagine because we don't have the kind of thing in our culture where we bow down to statues and worship them, but we certainly do make things of our own that we look to as the source of our own life and devoid of knowing who God is and devoid of a relationship with him, we go to those things for life. And God says, that's not going to help you. The only thing that will help you is to know the true God. We can be completely sure that we can know him. Some of us myself included, grew up with this theology that said this, well, you can't really be sure that uh, you are saved, that you, that you will actually live with God forever. You can't really be sure of that. You'll only know once you get to heaven. Some of us grew up with a theology like that, and it's garbage according to what the Bible said. Some of us ha- have grown up with theology that says something like this, well, you can't really know God because he's He's, he's too incomprehensible. And while that's true, the statement you can't really know God is garbage because of what the Bible says. He wants us to know him and be assured that he's for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful that you love us so much that you have given us these assurances that we will live forever with you and that here while we're on this earth that you will listen to us while we pray. That you will answer our prayers. That you will give us those things we ask according to your will. Lord, I'm thankful that we have the assurance that you're protecting us from sin. That it's you who has kept us and that you give us opportunity over and over and over again to escape from temptation. Lord, I thank you that you've promised us that we can actually know you. That's what we want, Lord. We want to know you, not just know about you. That's not enough. We want to know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you. 